Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Zach, you want to start? We're recording now. So, Dr. Gabrielline, thank you. A lot of things have happened in your life since we came back. So you're a new new mom to a beautiful little baby girl and she's how old now? She's about what, four months or something like that? Yeah, months? that's right, four months tomorrow. Awesome, awesome. Well, good yeah. for you. How's, how's life treating you now with, uh, with parenthood? So it's interesting. It's not necessarily what I expected. So it's from zero to one. Seems like it's a really big jump, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I gotta tell you, I did the birth all natural and it's the breastfeeding. That's way worse than uh, actual birth. I, I can't relate. I, I have no experience. <laughs> um, you know, but it's interesting, you know, um, and Sean, you and I are friends and we've talked and I was actually sick my entire pregnancy, I'm talking 10 months of nausea and vomiting. Mm-hmm. And now I'm finally back to a better, more substantial diet. Good for you. I mean, I, again, I, I, I'm glad I don't have to be pregnant. I'm glad there's women that do that for us. So you you actually set us up for the first really good question. What was the pregnancy diet like? Or could you how much could you tolerate to consume um, in general, I guess? It's really interesting. I my normal diet is largely red meat. Um I just I feel the best on that. Uh and I typically ate about two pounds with some herbs and some uh fats before I got pregnant. When I got pregnant, I actually got so ill that the majority of my diet was carbohydrates. Otherwise, I'd vomit. Uh-huh. Um, and now I'm back to my normal diet of higher protein, and it's about as far as I've gotten. Did, did you have to? Did it take a while to get used to that again, or was it a pretty smooth transition when you got past kind of the ill or the the nausea and were able to go back to your normal routine? Um. It took a little bit. It was interesting. Um, I was still a little nauseous for a period of time afterwards. Uh, and it's interesting because I've never had that experience before. I mean, obviously, it's my first baby, but <laughs> the, it, it's interesting the, how the body rejects a lot of foods. Other For me, it was, I was only able to tolerate bland foods. And interestingly, I, did, I had an immune reaction to that. Um, having to increase my carbohydrates, which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was in Malaysia, gosh, when was it? About a month ago, a little over a month ago, and I was giving some talks, and there was another lecturer there from Cambridge University, a PhD, he's got a company where he does like food allergy or sensitivity testing, and, and he, like he's done like, he said they've done like a quarter of a million tests a year for 20 years, mm. and the only food that almost never comes up as a sensitivity allergy is, is red meat, which is surprising because they'll see it with eggs, they'll see it with dairy, they'll see it with yeah. seafood and shellfish, and obviously plant foods, peanuts and you yeah. know, citrus and all, all kinds of plant stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see. But so now, so she's is she sleeping through the night yet? Are you got are you are you at that? I know you're you're probably at almost at that stage. I know almost. 
you know, mine were there where like, you know, maybe one feeding in the night, you know, you, you try to, yeah. you try to top them off really good before they go yeah. to bed, give them the big, you know, the big Mac before they go to bed. <laughs> Hopefully they she's sleep. Not, the yeah, she's really physical. Um, yeah. She started, you know, uh, where they go on their stomach and, and kind of push up. She started doing that at six weeks, staying upright. Wow. And good for her. Super active. Um, not quite sleeping through the night, but just a very active baby. That's good. You know, I found it because I've got I've had four, and and uh, I I remember it was like for the first year, two years, they're like, eh, all I do is poop and eat a little bit, and you know, they're kind of mom. And then once they start moving and getting around, and dad, you know, it's more dad. I mean, you hold them and stuff like that, but it's just kind of like, you know, I'm waiting for you to get to where we can go out and do some stuff, run around, wrestle, <laughs> do that stuff. So anyway, it's fun for mom, but really on. So yeah. You know, it's interesting. I just started back um, at work. So it's my, been my, you know, I'm in the clinic two days a week and it's my first time back. And it's interesting, you know, after four months of being at home and then um, separating from her, it's a, it's an interesting experience, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's something like that maternal bond that's just, you know, just kind of interesting because she's, she's totally dependent on you to, to survive. And it's kind of interesting how we, we kind of make it as humans. We had Don, we had your, uh, your former, I guess, mentor, Don Lehman on the show uh, a while back, talked about some good protein stuff. And yeah. I know that, uh, I don't, I, I don't think you, and I know you've been on some, some interesting, I know you're on the doctors and you were on Mark Hyman's show. And, and yeah. so you've been on, you've been getting some pretty decent sort of media and you're starting to fight the good fight for wow. certainly, so pro- for certainly protein. And, and so you're, so are you finding that that, that is a, a difficult fight to make in those, the, in those arenas? It's really, it's probably the most challenging and I can't believe it. I mean, I cannot believe the level of propaganda and anti-animal narrative that is currently coloring what individuals are actually even hearing. Um, and, and Don, you know, Don actually was here visiting the baby. Don Lehman, he's mentored me for years, two decades, but he's also one of my best friends and he was here. Um, and we just were discussing what's happening. So he's actually speaking to academic, you know, institutions about this very thing. And the, the propaganda narrative is really bad. And it starts with probably the money behind it, but then the physicians. So physicians inherently want to do the right thing. So I, you know, went on a show with other physicians and that show will remain nameless, although you know what that show is. And they were very plant-based and they had their biases and the information I could say, hey, the annals of internal medicine um, through the grade system looked at if protein was bad, you know, if red meat consumption needs to change. And this is what they do. They're epidemiologists. They are epidemiologists. This is what they do. They look at data. The grade system is the same, same system that they used for trans fats. And they found that we don't need to reduce red meat. Yeah, interestingly, and I don't know if you're aware, you may know that, that uh, Professor Gordon Guyatt is uh, the chair of that Nutrix consortium. He's actually coming on the show tomorrow, so we've got mm-hmm. him coming on. But he, and, and Zach may not even know this, but he is in the Canadian Hall of Fame, Med- Medical Hall of Fame. The, the term evidence-based medicine, you know, evidence-based medicine we think is also yeah. wonderful and great. He actually invented that term. He was a guy oh. that coined that term in a paper in 1991. And so he's the guy that's been doing this for 30 some years, Outrageous. evidence. And he's a guy that's saying, hey, there's, not, there's no evidence that red meat is bad for us. And so, I mean, it's like, who else, who better qualified do you have than the guy yeah. that invented evidence-based medicine to say, 
you know, th this is evidence. And, and, you know, we've got this, it's, you know, and it's, it's sad to see that we're so, we want to be, you know, there's like this science and like, I believe this science, but that's, that's it. You know, we've got guys like Dr. Michael Grieger saying, we don't need to do any more studies. We already know it all. It's out, but it's, it's, it's outrageous, you know? And, um, and then, so one of my patients came in today and said that her endocrinologist rep recommended the book, The Longevity Diet. Now, I don't need to tell you what kind of um, data is in The Longevity Diet, but books are not, you know, when, you know, books are not peer-reviewed information. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just so interesting how this trickles down from, you know, you have to depend on the integrity of the researcher. Yeah, no, it's very much true. And then, and then even the, the research itself can be uh, problematic. You know, I think it's, it's just, yeah. and, and, you know, and I wrote a book and it wasn't peer reviewed. And, and, but, but basically, I'm just, I go in there and say, you know, we've got a lot of things we don't know. And there's a lot of problems with our nutrition science, the way it's gathered, the way we interpret it, the way it's, it's not strong data. And I think, you know, kind of, you know, back to the grade system, you know, when we look at Gordon Guide, the World Health Organization accepts the grade, grade, grade system. So does the Cochrane Collaborative. So does a hundred other organizations. And so it's like, um, why are we not considering that relevant now? Well, because it doesn't match the narrative we want to hear. And it's, yeah. it's kind of a feel good thing. But really, I think, you know, my, my thought is we've got, and I, and I think some, I can't remember who pointed this out. I think uh, maybe Belinda Fetke or Zoe Harcum or somebody, they pointed out that there's about $5.7 trillion of capital out there trying to create this this uh, plant-based meat um, alternate protein industry, which is going to be projected 100 billion or plus. And so there's obviously there's a lot of narrative. There's a lot of you know sort of pressure to do this, and it, you just you just watch it happen. You can just see it happen, and it's starting. I don't know what you know. Obviously, your girl, your little girl is going to grow up and go to school, and when she's going to get to school, and she's going to hear all this yeah uh, this sort of propaganda that uh, you you know stop eating. Stop being mean and eating meat and save yeah. the planet and all that stuff. You know, and it's interesting because the good fight, I, I, I would say initially I believed fighting the good fight and doing it right was educating people and saying, hey, listen, you need high quality protein. You especially need it as you age. It's important not just for muscle mass, but overall well-being, right? Muscle is your metabolic currency. You have to protect against sarcopenia. And I really believed in my heart that we had to just educate and educating people was enough. And then everyone was going to say, oh, wow, this makes so much sense. And then there came a point where I realized that the conversation isn't any, it's not about education anymore. It is, it is not about education. It is how do we make sense and get through the narrative that is, and the propaganda that is pushing people to bad belief systems. I mean, it's, it's so far beyond saying here, let me present the data to you because you know, you and I would say, okay, I, I'm looking at this. I can see where I'm right. I can see where I'm wrong. This makes sense. That's not even the conversation anymore. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, I mean, every, people get their data from celebrities, from sound bites, from social media. This is the arena we live in now. This is where most of the data is, is out there. And so I, I've, you know, I've, re I've recommend, you know, I recommend, I recognize that this was a, yes, yeah, basically a war of propaganda at this point. So you gotta, you gotta get out there and just, you know, you know, be on it 24 seven and you got to fight fire with fire, unfortunately. And I get criticized for doing that, but that's what actually works. That's what actually gets people to listen 
and then you can present present the data. But I mean, people don't want to hear the data. They they've already made up their mind. Yeah. Oh, a pig's a pig. Pig is cute, and I can eat I can eat a Beyond Meat pig or whatever they're going to do, or you know, Beyond Pig or something like that. And so, it's just. Do they really um, have a Beyond Pig? I don't know if they do. They probably have some. I think they have a pork analog. I mean, they've got beef and they've got chicken and fish. They've got a Beyond Fish, I think, don't they? Yeah, they've got like a fake fish sort of thing, and 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 so it's kind of a, it's it's. And that's just weird. If you're not, if you don't believe in eating it, don't pretend like you're gonna. Eat it. It's just, it's just weird. Yeah, that's got to be marketing to pull people who aren't along the ethical lines. I would imagine, right? Like the. So, you know, like a lot of people are just, they're ritualistic and habitual with what they eat. So they're like, I'm going to have my burger and I'm going to have this or that. And when they try to slide in, say the plant-based burger, then they think it's going to slide in more seamlessly than say like a bean burrito or bean burger or whatever they used to use for that stuff. Well, I mean, I mean, we have to realize that the marketing and the people that are consuming these fake meat burgers are not are not vegans. I mean, they're only one one to two percent of the market anyway. Ninety five percent of the people that, that buy that stuff are omnivores that think they're going to save their health or their planet by eating the eating the processed crap, which is not which is completely not true. And there's such ridiculous marketing goes behind that. But uh, yeah, what? Um, so I mean, yeah. Let me ask you, Gabriel. What's what's uh, the latest? I mean, you're back into practice. Yeah. I know you were you were doing some experimentation with peptides and stuff like that. Um, are you still is the practice still pretty similar? I know Shane is in medical school now. I don't know if you change the way you have to practice and, and with the baby. Are you are you are you changing much the way your practice is? Um. So yeah, this is funny, Zach. I don't know if you know, but my husband was in the SEAL teams for a decade. Oh, cool. uh, I think that he just got too comfortable and I uh, decided he wanted to do something else. And he transitioned out of the SEAL teams. We had a baby. So he transitioned out in July, had a baby in August and started medical school a week after. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so you didn't waste any time. <laughs> He's like, well, why should things be easy in rainbows? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so my practice is, is very similar. You know, the practice of medicine is always evolving. Um, I'm seeing patients two days a week. And then one uh, telemedicine day, so the patients that are already my established patients. And I'm using peptides in practice and doing, I do a lot of hormone replacement and really optimization. So that, that aspect of practice hasn't, hasn't changed, you know. Yeah, that's actually an interesting, this is a bit of a side note to what we were talking about, but the telemedicine stuff I think is really interesting. I hadn't really been too familiar with it actually until I think my most recent insurance thing had it included and I was like, Oh, that's, that's a good way to streamline things a little bit. Does have you found that that's been pretty useful or is it kind of a little more difficult to be not in person with someone when you're talking about stuff like that? I think if you know them really well and I use telemedicine with the patients I know really well, mm. you know, that are in my personal practice. Um, it's always nice to see them in person, but the way that everything is going, there is a level of convenience for the, for the uh, patient. You know, I have patients from all over the country and even in New York City, they're all over and maybe they're busy executives and they don't have time to commute and then see me and then commute back. Um, but you know, I really love my patients, so I prefer in person. Yeah, I remember when I was back in residency many, many years ago, we had a really some of the early telemedicine stuff and we were doing, as a resident, I was in Texas and so we, we actually did three months out of every year as residents, we worked for the 
Texas Department of Corrections, and so we would provide health care to the inmates because it was a kind of a good win-win situation because we're still yeah. learning and, and they're prisoners. So, <laughs> but we would do that. We would do. I mean, I remember we were trying to do orthopedic exam, orthopedic exams from from remotely on television, and having some nurse try to tell them to do this. It was just comical, and you know, I was just like, okay, you know, there's there's things like you make someone duck walk where you walk like a duck, and you know that that'll kind of show you might have a meniscal injury. You're trying to do these things, and I would goof around and say, okay, now flap your arms like a chicken, and I just kind of play, you know, sometimes play with the guys, but but it was just a, it was just a. And so we would get all these, you know, we think we have surgical patients. And so because it's such a high risk to bring them in because they're, they're inmates, you know, it require big security details. And we'd get death row guys and we get all kinds of people that we were, they're bad people that we were, we didn't end up operating on. But we'd bring them in and we'd try to make the diagnosis over telemedicine. And, you know, probably 50% of the time we were wrong. We were like, well, we think you have this injury. And we actually put our hands on them. It's like, ah, we're wrong. You don't need surgery. Send you back. But, but that was just the, the system at the time. But I think for certain um, practices, it, it's very conducive. The other ones, it's not, and so it's kind of still evolving with uh, with the way it works. But I, 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 yeah, I don't think it's turning around. I mean, I think we're we're going to continue to mobilize, and you know, there's more and more physicians online, and more and more like what I'm doing now with this this company we just started called MeetRx.com, which is basically lifestyle and health coaching. You know, um, that's all mobile, and eventually it'll, it'll all be on cell phones, and, and that's where we're going to go with that. But that's and that's the way of the future. I mean, yeah. having the capacity where it's not just. I mean, people will always crave one-on-one -on -one connection. I, I believe that to be true. Um, but I think that there is a component of that that, with the availability of telemedicine, is really really helpful because you can reach people that wouldn't normally be able to see you. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a great equalizer. And, and I would say that uh, as much of my communication now is, you know, via text, tweets, you know, whatever, direct messages through through. When I do get an, in a live like video, it's 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 like a, a huge step up. It's like, wow, I get to talk and see your face and, yeah. you know, have more than a, than a typing sentences. And so it's still not as good as in person, but it is a huge improvement. And we do know that uh, people that have support for whatever the outcome, whether it's just a friendly voice or somebody guiding them, their outcomes are always better than if they just go and try to do it on their own. So we know that's that's occurring for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I I want to just bring something up to you, you know, actually to the listener because it, it really got under my skin. And I actually sent you this message yesterday. Uh, Medscape um, sent what was it? What is the study that I sent you? It was it was really disturbing to me. Yeah, it was two it was two epidemiologic studies looking yeah. at protein protein. Yeah, I think they were about to see protein associations and uh it was. Yeah, it was a big study that said high protein diet could um could be harmful even for healthy kidneys. Right? I sent this to you and I sent it to Don Lehman. This is so frustrating because it's it's Medscape and Medscape is considered a pretty honorable uh, place for information for physicians and they're they're sending this out right and this is I don't even know you know who is the group behind that that is sending that out this um, epidemiological studies from obscure journals how did that make it into the headlines what, what are they defining as high like what when when do you enter high protein versus moderate yeah they were i think you're like 20 percent of your calories coming from protein you know and, and, and that's, might, the, that's considered high the average american's getting like 12 to 15 percent, which i would argue is dreadfully low but mm -hmm. yeah i mean we're seeing this and there it, it's almost as if 
even even our journals or our, 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 our go-to resources are resorting to clickbait, silliness. It's the same thing because they're, they're just wanting to drive traffic and it doesn't even matter if it's if it's helpful to patients or not. And it, it is it is not a, you know, the, the thing that frustrates me is we just keep doing these epidemiologic studies, which never, ever, ever lead to anything. It's just, it just, you know, just do some damn studies, do some actual research on human beings and stop, you know, doing this, this epidemiologic stuff, which is a waste of time. And I, and I, I completely agree with you. And I bring that up because this is what the physicians are seeing. And so the physicians are believing this and then they're telling it the patients, it just feels as if this is an uphill battle that, you know, we cannot educate. It's, it's really challenging. Anyway, that's my uh, rant. It is challenging and I do it every day. And, but I think it's worth fighting. I, I think we just can't lay down and, and, and do that because, you know, like I said, you've got little kids, I've got, you've got a daughter, I've got little kids. And, uh, Maybe one day Zach will have some little little marathon runners in his house, but uh, you know it's it, you know if we don't do anything now, it's it's you know it's going to be it's going to be you know there's a book out there uh, you know the, the gal that wrote the the Handmaid's Tale, and there's she wrote a couple other books with that, and one of them I can't remember the name of it, but one of them describes this sort of fake meat lab grown meat future, and it's dystopian. I'm just, I just I just think about that all the time. They, they actually called it Smeat S M E A T like synthetic meat. Smeat, yeah. and this is what we were eating, and you know that was just the way it is. And I think there's some people that can't wait for that. They're just they just they just crave this, you know, Star Trek. We're going to just get our food prepared in the holodeck, or you know, and there it's going to it's going to pop in some little food that looks like what what it's supposed to be, but it's really just you know chemicalized garbage that you know it's just it's just you know it's just frustrating um, that people are. Um, willing to do that they're happy about that you know it's just in the name of convenience in the name of uh um i don't want to i don't want to you know make eating a priority or nutrition but a priority i just want to sit there and stare at a screen and put put kibble in my mouth well what was that product that came out a few years ago that was like tied to um it was tied to just a lot of like the coding community i think because they were just they didn't want to like break away from works but they they'd find these situations where these guys weren't like eating all day long because they were just coding. It, it might've been something called, it might've been that Huel stuff. It was like human fuel, Huel. Soylent, was it Soylent? Soylent, Soylent was it. or Soylent, yeah. yeah, something like that. It's supposed to be all nutritionally complete, everything you need as a human or something like that. It's just awful. You know, the, the, the propaganda is dangerous to the mass public, and it, but who it really ends up affecting is the aging population. I mean, really. So they are going to, you know, when you're younger, you have, there's a lot of flexibility. You mm-hmm. can eat a nonsensical diet and actually do okay. But, you know, in, in the aging population, it's much less forgiving. And it's so dangerous for them in particular. You know, I mean, what? to eat less protein, to eat lower quality protein, that is the single worst piece of advice that you could ever give someone to age well. Literally, the single worst piece of advice. Are, are they even advocating for the elderly population to keep their protein restricted or are they even, are they, is that still just a angle to be a little higher than the average? Well, it should be, but right now the, the position papers have come out saying that it should be roughly double the RDA. And there's the ProDage study. That, that's a great, um, a great study, but the, the guidelines are still 0.8, gram, 0.8 grams uh, per kilogram per body weight, per pound body weight. 
right? Um, 0.8 grams per kilogram. That's still the recommendation. Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically prevent sarcopenia and, and or maybe prevent sarcopenia and die. But I mean, it's, 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 it's just kind of, it's kind of, well, I mean, we've had, gosh, Don Lehman, Stu Phillips, Jose Antonio, Keith Barr, yourself. I mean, we've got so many people on there that are on the pro protein side of the store, this thing. And I think, uh, in fact, I just reposted one of our clip with Keith Barr uh, on my, my little YouTube channel talking about mTOR because there's this, you know, this, this group out there that thinks that mTOR, like Walter Longo and others, that, you know, mTOR is the enemy and we should keep it super low. And, and to do that, we've got to cut our protein. And we find out it's much more nuanced than that. And that if we, you know, if we can, we can still eat protein. And if it's particularly if we resistance train, it'll shuttle all that mTOR activity into our muscle where we want it. We want to preserve that lean muscle mass. And, you know, we can still prevent disease, aging, cancer, you know, with, with, with doing that. So you can still eat plenty of protein. So it's yeah. kind of, uh, we don't get the whole story on some of this stuff. Well, and mTOR is different in muscle than liver. And I was talking to Donald Lehman about that, this. It's in different tissues and it responds to different um, stimulus. In muscle, it's leucine. And the pancreas, it's, or the liver, it's insulin. Right? There, it's, it's not the same all around. I mean, the mechanism is the same, but the stimulus is different. Isn't it yeah. too, like, I think like when, when you find someone who's following a, a high protein diet, however you want to define that, they tend to be folks who are more like animal product based. Uh, and they're not probably eating like four or five meals a day. They're probably eating a couple. So like, isn't that another kind of side of the mTOR story too, where like, if, uh, if you are having those larger spacings between those feeding sessions, then it's less of an issue because you're not just kind of pinging it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thought process that the, the machinery essentially resets every four to five hours. It, you don't want to keep it on per se, right. For lack of a better term and to can continuously stimulate it through, you know, all day long, it shouldn't be on. It should be in discrete meals, not a grazing effect. And of mm -hmm. course, insulin and uh, insulin is a much bigger trigger for mTOR. Yeah, we saw the insulin calories, and you know, like I said, I, I eat twice a day, and so I'm only I'm only spiking it twice a day, and it's usually in association with uh, uh, exercise. And so it's it's you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not particularly concerned about that, and uh, hopefully. We'll, we'll move on to common sense. I mean, you know, like we had Ted Naiman on here talking about, we already know what happens to protein restricted people and it's the nursing home population. You see them and there's, I mean, I, I had patients I'd operate on you and if you just grab their skin, their skin would fall off. I mean, their skin was just, you know, you touch them and you see these, these, these people with uh, such fragile skin. I mean, they're, they're, they're just literally falling apart. Yeah. And that, that's who the narrative really affects is this, this population. Um, we're just going to have to protect them. Well, and I think, I think like, you know, I mean, if you want, if you want robust, healthy kids, you know, get them on, uh, hopefully you got baby planning on getting her, getting her on some good high quality, you know, animal fat and meat on, on her for her brain and stuff like that. But, um, you know the thing is they target because they, they most of the most of this targeting this uh, stuff is designed particularly the environmental stuff the the emotional stuff is targeting uh, younger generations and particularly women I mean women seem to be the ones that tend to fall for this emotional uh, veganism argument there's a disproportionate number of women that, you know vegans that are women 
and then they're, 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 they tend to be, you know, 16 year old, 14 year old girls to maybe in their early twenties. And then they, you know, then they get their health doesn't go well. I mean, I, I guess you've, I think you've commented, you've had some patients that were that and they don't generally do particularly yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, those, those are definitely my sickest patient population. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of other things that go along with it. It creates a very unhealthy relationship with food, at least from what I've seen in my experience, in my clinical experience, from what I've seen, they, they you know, it, it creates a very disordered, I'll just say this, it creates a very disordered relationship with food. And that's not to say that people that aren't vegan don't have a disordered relationship with food. That's totally possible too, you know? Um, but the focus can create a lot of issues in that way. Yeah, I mean, some, some of them are, you know, we see a lot of anorexic gals that adopt veganism and then they just kind of hide their anorexia with, with a different name and we see that. But um... Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. What is, uh, I know your population, is it still like athletes and, and executives mostly? Is that kind of still who your most of your population is? It is. And, and of course I do work with military, special operations, um, combat operators. And that, that's a very interesting collection of individuals um, and their needs are very different. So um, combat operators, executives, athletes, and I do a ton of weight loss as well. What, um, so I'd, I'd, I'd be interested about the diets of those particular populations of weight loss folks and then in the, in the special force, because I work with a lot of the pararescue guys, combat controllers in the Air Force, which you know basically is our special operators there. And uh, you know, they, were, they definitely had some different, different challenges and what they were doing activity wise that they had to support. But I, I didn't really know much about uh, nutrition back then. I was just the orthopedic guy taking care of their, uh, you know, their labral tears and, you know, whatever aches and pains and handing out ibuprofen and doing, doing all the stuff we used to do. That's probably not, not the best strategy anymore. But um, so what do you find the, the, the guys that are charging hard, the, the guys that are special forces or athletes, are needing that are, that's a little bit different from the general population then what are you doing for obesity so the it's interesting it depends on where they are in their cycle of deployment if they're home um, you know obviously on deployment depending on where they're going they either have cooks or they don't have access to really fresh food and they're doing a lot of MREs and um, you were in the military you know you don't really get the highest quality of food uh, and the calorie consumption that these guys need is is tremendous one of the things that uh, we have been talking about doing, and it's really based on the individual, is 
doing more paleo style uh, MREs and they have them. They're much more expensive and the guys can purchase them themselves and, you know, depending on where the funding is, get them themselves. That has been very helpful for them. I mean, again, the best impact that you can have nutritionally with the special operations is actually when they get home. So they go through a repair cycle um, because when they're out in the field, it's a totally different ball game. And in terms of um, weight loss, for me, you know, and also studying under Donald Lehman, it's really you kind of phase them. They go through phases. But the first fundamental thing that we do, at least that I do in my clinic, is um, really fixing their nutrition. And that is sometimes even putting them on a protein sparing fast, which is a higher protein diet and, you know, depending on their level of obesity. Um, but high protein is typically the staple. Do you notice, cause I know within the, especially within kind of the carnivore community, there's, a, I guess, a debate maybe about whether, like what these ratios of protein to fat should be have you been seeing any nuance within that? Are you having people have more success on weight loss when they're leveraging protein versus keeping the protein yeah. still at a relatively high compared to the average American probably, but not high compared to what you might see in like a meat-based diet that isn't focused heavily on adding extra fat to it? That's a, that's a really good question. I don't know. What is the average protein of a, a, a meat-based diet of a carnivore diet? What would that average be? Um, you know, I use myself as, as, as the average guy, I guess, you know, I mean, I'm not quite average, but most people are probably getting their, their protein intake is around anywhere between 25 and 40, 40%. I'd say that would be the protein, uh, amount. So much higher than the average American diet. So you talk, so would it be, how was that, how would that break out? Like, um, break down to be one gram per pound body weight, higher two grams, yeah, I mean that's something like for me, I eat. Um, God, I, what, do I, what do I eat? So I, I today, like today, I had four pounds of steak, and I'm 240 pounds right now. So that's probably that's, let's see, so 350, six. maybe 400 grams of, of protein with that. You know, depending on what. I weigh about 240. Okay. Yeah, so I, I'm getting probably, uh, you know, probably close to one and a half uh, grams per pound. So I'm eating definitely a high, high volume of protein, but uh, okay. that is, you know, for someone that is trying to actively be strong and, and maintain muscle mass and, and training hard, I'm getting ready for these rowing world championships and I have to ramp up my strength training and ramp up my conditioning. And so it's, it's, and there'll be days where I'll eat six pounds. I mean, that's, I know that'll happen. Like I, you know, like I, I, I had four today and it's still early. I may, I might throw down another two more steaks and have six steaks today. So we'll just have to see how, <laughs> how the appetite goes. Cause I, I've got a big, I'm going to deadlift tomorrow and I like to, and that'll probably stimulate my appetite again. So it's just, I, I'm very, fairly intuitive. I mean, obviously my diet is not very varied. And so it's, it's kind of like when I'm hungry, I eat more. And when I train harder, I'm, I get hungry. I mean, it just, it just, it just makes sense that that works and that's how I do it. So, um, and then but, how, fat, how much fat is like an average, 50% would be then fat on average Yeah, I mean, it would be, uh, so it's either protein and, and fat and mineral to no carbohydrate. And so it's, uh, so I mean, something like 60% of my calories are coming from fat, typically maybe a little bit more depending on the day of the week or something like that. But it's, it's, it's about, I want to say about a one, one gram of protein per one gram of fat somewhere in that neighborhood, maybe even a little higher on the protein. 
depending wow. if, I, if I'm eating, if I'm eating ribeyes, I'm eating more fat. That's probably as fatty as I get. And then a lot of times I'll eat, um, you know, T-bones or fillets or hamburger or something like that. It's not, sometimes I'll do a little fish seafood, but right, you know, it's kind of interesting right now. And, and it's just, just the way it works for me. When I'm, when I'm eating nothing but steaks and water, I feel my best. I mean, my body composition feels my best. I feel stronger. I, I feel less inflamed. I, I just, uh, perform better and so that's what I do and then you know the rest of the year it might be I'll put eggs in there and dairy in there and seafood in there and once in a while like I'll have another something that's not even carnivore at all and uh you know like my kid's birthday I had a piece of cake on his birthday and you know it's just but when I'm being honest with myself that's what works for me so yeah it's interesting what was it that the paleo menacina group didn't they have like an 82 18 didn't they go as high fat as that the, yeah, I mean, there and I had I talked with the, the uh, Chofia Clemens, that's sort of one of the lead researchers there, and uh, she, you know, she they recommended two to one, two grams of fat for one gram of protein, and uh, I uh, you calculate that that's about eighty one percent fat. You know, if you look at nine, you know, nine 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 times whatever two and one times four, it's eighty eighty one percent fat. But I asked her, I challenged her on that, and I said, well, why is it exactly two to one? Why is it exactly you know, 81%. She says, well, it's not really, we're, we're trying to shoot for a level of ketosis. And so if you're, if you're making the right amount of ketones with more protein, that's still fine. And, and that's one of the things I found. I don't know if, you know, I don't know if you get too much into ketosis and ketones and measuring that stuff, but I've yeah. seen a lot of people that eat, despite eating quite a bit of protein, and there's actually studies that seem to support this, that they still make a fair amount of ketones. And it kind of really depends on the situation and the person. And as we know, it's, and Zach knows it's not just how much you make, it's how much you use. You, you can officially utilize how much you waste. It has to do with meal frequency, exercise intensity, uh, you know, caloric intake. There's a whole bunch of factors that go in there just besides macronutrient content. So I don't get I mean, to definitely uh, all my, you know, for my patients, when their calories are controlled, that's, you know, important when we, whatever we determine is their caloric intake. I tend to go higher protein and lower fat, keeping fat in check at least for women, I see a ton of women. And this is what I've found to be best for women. I think that when women go, try to go more ketogenic, I haven't seen it be successful. They may have a month honeymoon period, but then when I test their blood, their hormones, they're out of whack, their thyroid isn't great, their reverse T3 is elevated, you know, they're not feeling well, they're not sleeping well. Um, so, you know, being trained by Donald Lehman, I'm much more focused on protein rather than fat. Yeah, I mean, I I, I tend to, particularly as an athlete, I, I tend to skew towards protein. And and I know like when people are trying to get lean, like 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 really lean, you, I mean, you gotta you gotta go to skew more to protein and, and go away from fat. I mean, that just works. I mean, it that works for pretty much every single person whose job depends on being lean fitness competitors, bodybuilders, and so on and so forth. And so that's, that's what just works. Now, um, I would argue that uh, there's a difference between ultra lean and ripped and being healthy. I mean, I don't know that uh, losing, your, off, right? yeah, losing your menstrual cycle and, and your libido and, and starving and being grumpy is, is necessarily the best place to be. But if you want to get there, yeah, then getting, getting protein in there helps. I mean, it's also interesting to note that when we look at gastric bypass patients, what kind of diet do they put on pre-surgery to shrink their liver fat? Right. It's basically, a, you know, protein sparing modified fast. It's basically high protein. So, you know, and this is something that's actually been on my mind and I'm glad that we're talking about it. The whole fiber thing. 
And I know that you've talked about it before. I don't know if you've read anything more recent, but you know, um, I just love love to hear your thoughts on should we cycle it? Is there you know fiber restriction? Do you think we need it? I don't think it's essential. I mean, it's clearly not. Or I, you know, if it was essential for life, I'd be dead long ago. Um, I think, and this will be interesting to talk to Gordon Guy tomorrow because I think you know the same level of evidence out there that suggests that fiber is beneficial is it wouldn't pass the grade classification. I'd say if you if you put that up against a grade classification, you would see that there's no real benefit. I'm going to ask him about that tomorrow yeah, if I get a chance. But, you know, as far as fiber goes, I mean, yes, there are, I think it's context dependent. If you are in a diet where you're having a hard time controlling your appetite, your, your satiety, if you're, if you're eating a lot of sugar and processed food, then fiber is going to displace some of that. There is, it does have a role in satiety. Um, and, and I think there's, there's a, there's, and that's one of the reasons it's beneficial because it probably allows you to eat less. You know, you can, you can do it the same thing with cardboard or rocks. I mean, if you put a bunch of cardboard or rocks down your gullet, um, you would fill up and wouldn't be able to eat as much. I mean, that, I think that is the, 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 the actual benefit of fiber. Uh, there, I don't think there's any, I'm not so excited about the microbiome and the, and the short chain fatty acids. You can make that regardless. You can do it with amino acids. You can do it with, you know, converting beta hydroxybutyrate to butyrate is a very simple reversible reaction. So I don't get too excited about the people say you got to have it for your microbiome. Cause we've seen, we see, I, I've had the, 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 the opportunity to see a lot of people's microbiomes that do this fiber free meat based diet. And it's very, it's got great diversity. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's generally a healthy looking, what we consider healthy. Although I, I would still say that we don't really know a hundred percent what's healthy. We're way, way uh, premature on making, you know, prescriptive proclamations about what, what we should be doing for, for our, for our microbiome. So, um, so I would say, yeah, it's conditionally beneficial. It is not essential for life or even health in my view. Um, I think it's based on, again, epidemiology. It's based on some theories like, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the fellow, I keep blanking the guy's name, um, Burkett, Dennis Burkett, you know, of, of Burkett, Burkett's lymphoma fame. You know, when he was back in the 1940s studying Africans, saying, oh, look, they ate a lot of fiber and they're healthy. Therefore, therefore, fiber is healthy and it's, it's the same old correlation does not equal causation stuff. And then you got John Yudkin saying, yeah, but they don't eat, they don't eat a lot of sugar either. So, you know, this is a low fat, the low fat, high fiber narrative was more, more attractive to people that make cereal perhaps and sell sugar and, you know, influence. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a rabbit hole, but you know, I think that for some people and, and there, I have people on a carnivore diet, well, I tell them, Hey, you need to add fiber back in for a little while if they're having digestive issues. Um, but in the long run, what kind of fiber is it a fiber supplement? Do you I don't, you know, I just tell them, that, I usually tell them to do it from food just because I think it's, it's something that, it's just I, I prefer people getting food and, and uh, supplements, but I don't I don't do it very often, um, and I often leave it leave it up to them. To, it's to do it as a temporary a temporary thing while they're doing it. But w- the problem is we don't have a lot of uh, data on this population that I'm in this cohort. Fortunately, you know that's coming. I know David Ludwig out of, out of Harvard is going to be doing a study all looking at the looking at our population here this year. And we'll we'll get some more data, and hopefully that'll drive some some interventional trials. That is going to be that's going to be amazing. Isn't because just to follow up with the the butyrate, isn't butter got the highest amount of butyrate out of anything? <laughs> I don't know if it's the highest sack, but I know there's there's butyrate is a significant fatty acid found in butter, you know, butyric acid, and so yes, you can you can you can you can get it through butter, but but more importantly, you, you don't. 
you can get a lot of ways other than fermenting fiber, which we don't have a great capacity compared to other, even other primates. And, and it's certainly like ruminant animals and things like that, who's, you know, they munch on grass all day and they spend 16, 12, 12, 16 hours grazing or, or primates in the, living in the trees that spend 60 or 70% of their time chewing. You know, we just don't do that as humans. Thank God. <laughs> Got time for other stuff then. <laughs> nice. So when are you going to, so are you, you're four months. So are you, are you solid food time? Are you about to introduce? Or are you going to wait till six yeah. months or what's, what's we'll, see. we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Probably just, you know, breastfeed for six months, figure it out. Another two months. I mean, what about you guys? <laughs> Uh, well, Zach has very little experience with breastfeeding, and I only have secondhand experience. But I know I think I think our kids, my kids, were a year on the breast, and uh, I can't remember. I think we started introducing food around six six months or so, you know. And uh, uh, early on, my kids were on the rice cereal and all the stuff that I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't do now. Yeah, we won't be doing, we won't be yeah. doing that. We we won't be doing that. We're gonna see how that goes. Uh, what was it that Dr. Bill Schindler was telling us that the all the indigenous tribes they go from the breastfeeding and then it's the parent chews the food for the for the kid and passes before the whole food stuff goes. So you could go that route if you really want to get creative, but yeah. <laughs> I want to bypass that that step if you can. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a pre-mastication, and uh, it's interesting. I think with indigenous tribes they tend to breastfeed for about. I think two, two and a half years. I mean, it's interesting. Oh my gosh. So that's what you got. So if you, you really got, you really got a, <laughs> a whole full-time job. I mean, really. But here's an FYI. We, the most, the longest period of weaning for a, for a primate is the orangutan who spends eight years breastfeeding. <laughs> Listen, I had no idea what my mother went through until I had a child. I should have been a lot nicer to her when I was 16. <laughs> um, you know, but it's interesting to see uh, the mother's nutrition. It changes the composition of the breast milk. I mean, the, the quality of the, let me rephrase that, the breast milk main um, components like the alpha-lactalbumin, all that stuff is standard, right? But the other nutrients like uh, zeaxanthin and iodine, all of that stuff actually gets into the breast milk. And it's dependent on what the mom eats. So the better the higher nutrient density of the mom, the better nutrient density of the breast milk. Yeah, there are there are a number of studies looking at, for instance, vegetarian uh, breast milk and seeing it's lower in you know critical fatty acids. That uh, you know they 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 say the outcomes. They don't know if it shows a big outcome difference, but there are and those things are critical for brain development. So obviously the first two years are really important for baby's brain and then everything in utero, of course. But I mean that's 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 a huge time for brain development for those babies. So it's good to get them high quality nutrition. That's the time. And I, it, it, you know, that's the thing that saddens me is, you know, they, they, they've got this, this position paper from the American uh, Dietetics and Nutrition Association, which all the vegans sort of represent, you know, and the, uh, the punchline is it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, the vegan diet is appropriate for all ages and stages. And, but when you look at the authors, you know, we talk about, you know, is, is there a financial bias or, or even an intellectual bias? This is the thing that the grade thing talked about. They talk about intellectual bias. 
all three of the authors are ethical vegans that have vegan and vegetarian cookbooks. One of the guys, a Loma Linda guy. So all three of the authors that published this study are, are ethical vegans. And so you're like, well, maybe that's biased. And then you look at the reviewers in a high percentage, almost half the reviewers are the same thing. So it's kind of like, is it, you know, is this right? And then we see organizations like the German Dietetics Association, the Swiss Dietetics Association, you know, groups in, in uh, uh, Denmark and Belgium saying, in Italy saying, no, 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 it's awful. We can't be doing that. So a little bit, a little bit disconcerting, you know, we got all these people that are just uh, lining their babies up and giving them uh, uh, almond milk and you know, this sort of stuff. I thought that that was, it, they had determined that it's just not suitable for, um, children and infants that is uh the position of many organizations but it's not the position of the american dietetics and nutritions which is one of the larger ones but again the authors were all three wow. vegans vegetarians and so this is what the all the sort of the vegan proponents are saying they're like well this is this study here and i and every time I, they show that i said oh that's the one with the three authors that were all ethical vegans and, and do they have a central bias in there you know it'd be like me writing a, an article saying meat is good I mean, yeah, I agree, and yes, I'm biased toward. But I would very much acknowledge that yes, I'm very much biased on this stuff, and it just and, and it's because of the results I've seen, and you know that sort of stuff. But it's still very much a bias that should be accounted for. Yeah, and the the danger. I think that you bring up a good point because of developing brains of infants and newborns, that is really dangerous, and that's not reversible. A lot of chronic disease and even acute disease, a lot of those processes are reversible. That, you know, neurological damage is not one of them. Yeah, there was, and I've looked at a lot of these, these pediatric studies, and there was a study out there looking at, uh, I guess it was macrobiotic vegans and looking at as, you know, for the first five years of their life, and even if they leave the diet, even as a teenager, they had delays in you know, cognitive evaluation, they saw a decrease in cognitive evaluation relative to their peers. So, I mean, you could be doing damage, and, you know, and, and, and you know what you look at, it, you can't tell five IQ points on your baby. You're like, well, he's moving, he's rolling and doing these things, but maybe just knock five, five IQ points off your kid's, uh, uh, you know, potential, or you maybe you shorten their height by an inch or two. Is that relative? Is it going to kill them? No. But if your kid had the choice and the kid had anything to say about it, it's like, man, me and dad, I really would like having an extra five IQ points. It would probably make my life easier. And maybe if I was a little bit taller, it might make my life, life easier. So, I mean, it's, it's just kind of, I, I, it makes me sad when these people are running this experiment on their kids, especially. Do, and I, yeah, I completely agree. Do they have, and I guess this is probably a very difficult study I guess to do and if you would do it it would probably just be associational but like do they have any good information about like just the formula versus breastfeeding in terms of the quality of uh, I guess the outcome <laughs> um, I don't know I mean I think that across the board most people from their experience would say that uh, breast milk is better I mean the um, physicians in the hospital. I mean, it's, it's highly encouraged. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know, Sean, do you know if they've done studies? I haven't read a ton of studies, like, you know, like for me personally. Uh, yeah, there are studies on that. And I, I, I haven't got into that much. I mean, just because I look at the ingredients on, on formula, and it's not something a decision that I have to make. But I mean, if you, if you just pull up the flip a flip a formula bottle around, it's going to be like corn syrup and uh, soybean oil. That is not good for us. Um, there are other formulas. You know, there's a lot of formulations out there, but that, that's a pretty common one. And so um, I think the studies show that 
there's not any significant, um, you know, outcome differences that are, that are, you know, there's trends and things like that. I don't think they're like, uh, but breast milk clearly is what we're designed for. I mean, it's better mm -hmm. for us. Um, there was, you know, some people will say that the, the formula people did some sort of behind the scenes, negative, nasty things, and particularly in third world countries and try to get in there and, and try to convince people not to breastfeed and, and this sort of stuff just to sell their product. But um, I think, you know, and this was something I was going to suggest. And I know a lot of people will cite like Weston A. Price as a good place for formulas. If, if you're, if you're someone that can't breastfeed, they've got some formulas that are apparently a little higher quality or a lot higher quality, quite yeah, honestly. It's pretty close. Goat What's milk. that? Goat milk? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it might be. I, I, I don't, I don't, like I said, I, it's not something I'm intimately yeah, interested in right now. Breastfeeding. I, I will tell anyone who is breastfeeding, any of your listeners is that um, as you get later on in the day, there's an increase in tryptophan in the breast milk because it helps the increase in tryptophan helps put the baby to sleep. So if you mm. want your baby to sleep during the day, pump later on at night and you'll have a breast milk with a composition that is higher in tryptophan. Yeah, it's an interesting, there was, used to be, they used to supplement trip, the tryptophan, they used to sell it as a sleep aid. And then there was some like contaminated stuff from China and it caused some people to get really sick. So that came off the market. One of the, one of the thoughts was Turkey is high in tryptophan. So everybody would get post, you know, you get postprandial sleepiness from the tryptophan in Turkey. So it's kind of interesting, but that is, uh, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. Interesting factoid about the breast milk. Um, yeah, I think the, the Turkey stuff was by Fernstrom, the large neutral amino acids. It's, and they, you know, I, I don't think, it, you know, it's interesting, the individual amino acids, because I've, I've been reading about it, there isn't a ton of stuff on them. It's like the amino acid science, it's still, you know, even if it's been 45 years, it's still newer science, which is, is wild. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I guess because most of us eat protein, we don't eat amino acids. I mean, amino acids are supplements. It's hard to get just isolated leucine outside of the pill. And so you're eating like steak behind me is going to have the full complement of amino acids plus. That's making me starving. <laughs> well, yeah, you got to eat. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm considering eating another couple of steaks. I don't know, goodness. <laughs> But um, so what are, are you finding? Uh, so you're, you said, what is your, so what is your diet currently right now as you're breastfeeding? Because a lot of people ask me about, is it safe to breastfeed eating meat? And I, I sell, yeah, so. I mean, and this is just me. I, you know, the majority of my diet is red meat. Um, and it's just been that way for years. It just, it's what works best for me. Uh, my husband calls it prison food. <laughs> he says that we eat a lot of, we actually eat underground bison. Um, and uh, that's really my staple. It's high in zinc, it's high in B12, it's high in iron. It's just the OG of superfoods. Um, I'll add in a little oat milk in my coffee and I use collagen and that seems to help with my milk production. That's pretty much, uh, pretty much what I'm eating these days. I'm very simple. I am super low maintenance and all my friends that come over, they're just, they just think if I'm cooking, man, they're, they're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. We had a dinner, uh, Thanksgiving dinner. We had some folks came over and they were, they eat stuff. So I, I got, we got a bunch of just other food and, but I was out cooking, you know, I was cooking steaks and I really wasn't, I mostly ate steaks, but it was just kind of, I really do that anymore. I, I don't really have to think about food anymore. It's, it's, it's literally as hard as do I want one or two steaks. And, and that that's, 
that for me is kind of nice because I'm busy. I got enough time. I'm, I'm too busy with other stuff to, to spend three hours a day preparing meals and cleaning up after meals and thinking about meals and that sort of stuff. Zach, are you, uh, are you, are you, I can't remember where you're at because you haven't run, run any in a while. I mean, you, you've been off for a couple of weeks, right? So you're in uh, recovery mode or where are you at right now? Yeah, kind of a bit of recovery. I did a 50 miler about a week and a half ago. So I, I bounced back physically from it, but it's like, yeah, it's just, there's no reason to really jump into a big training block after that. So I'm eating pretty low carb, a lot of animal products right now. A lot of, I've been doing a lot of, um, I'll do, I'll get like a, a ground beef and I'll make that and then I'll just melt a bunch of like cheese in it. And that's pretty good. That's just kind of like a good, like go-to to have around for me. You know, I don't know, Gabba, Zach was on uh, Rogan's show uh, like a day or two ago. I just watched it last night. So he announced uh, that he was, he was saying, Joe, I'm thinking about running across the country and trying to break the record for <laughs> running 3,100 miles in 40 days or something like that. And so, and, you know, and, and Rogan's like, uh, yeah, we're going to sponsor you, Zach. We're totally behind you. So Zach, Zach kind of roped himself into it. So he doesn't have a choice now. So he has to do it. Oh, so, my God. I what do you Zach, get I want to know what is it? What do you eating that? What's that? Well, what do you eat? Um, the the guy who has the record, he I think he was eating like something like fifteen thousand calories a day or something like that. And I mean, I think he was eating just basically everything he could get his hands on. I think like because when I'm when I'm training for most of the races that I go I I peak for, I'll bring back some carbohydrate when I get into peak training, but um with something that's as low intensity as this is going to have to be uh i think this is like the perfect window for something that would be a little closer to like strict keto or zero carb because uh yeah you just wouldn't really want or need to have a, a real a real fast acting fuel source for something when you're going to be out there you know 10 12 maybe 14 hours a day on average so that's where I'm at right now, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's funny. Cause I, I talked to the guy that I was planning this with the day before going on Rogan. So it was like, we barely even scratched the surface as to like the logistics of it all. And yeah. I had no clue that Joe was going to be that excited about it. I figured he'd be excited about it, but I didn't think he was going to want to sponsor it and promote it and everything. So, uh, we might be working with a little shorter timeline than originally planned, but, uh, I'll have to do my homework to plan for something like that in terms of training. Oh, for training? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so foreign to anything I've ever done before uh, that I, but just the, my general like principle and philosophy with training is you just get as specific as you can to the event you're doing as you get closer to it. So for something like this, where it's going to be really slow, really long, I would just probably do the balance would be, I'm going to want to do a training block that gets me ready to be on my feet all day. But that training block has to also, I have to also recover from it and be able to actually go and actually do the event too. So I think there's a pretty fine line there. Uh, I mean, the guy who broke the record previously, he was doing like 200 to 250 mile training weeks leading into it. Uh, so I, I don't know if I'll do that much. I actually think there's a, a different way to maybe go about it. I, I think he was doing just really slow running, pretty consistent. Whereas I think there's maybe a way to do like, a speed walking mechanic and then also a running mechanic and alternate between the two in which case then I'd have to really work on the speed walking mechanics I've never really done that before so it, but it would maybe it would maybe make it a little more simplified in terms of the way that my body gets stressed over the course of it if I'm not doing the same mechanic over and over the entire time 
but I've got a lot of homework to do is what, is what I learned the last couple of days. Hey, Gabriel, let me ask you on your, cause you, on your pregnancy, you, you were still working out during your pregnancy, weren't you? As I recall. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So you back, you back, uh, you, are you feel like you're bouncing back pretty quickly or are you, are you at your, where you want to be? Uh, so my normal body fat percentage is about 14. Okay, that's pretty right low, yeah. So that's kind of where I normally am. And while you're breastfeeding, so now I'm breastfeeding, I'm at 24%. That's really high for me. Um, but I am back training. What, what type of workouts were you doing when you were, when you were pregnant? Was there like a, a oh, okay. Oh, just a lot of kettlebell work, a lot of squatting, um, a lot of functional movements. And I was sick the whole time. So I would do a set, then go throw up and then do another set. I mean, you know, when you're married to a seal, there's no, <laughs> there's no taking a break. <laughs> no excuse. Yeah, I used to, it was kind of funny when I was, when I was in the military, I was in, you know, it's kind of funny. I went through officer training school, kind of wimpy thing. Right. So, but I got back from playing professional rugby in New Zealand. I was like Superman in shape. And I go to this thing and it's air force officers. And it was like the bad news bears. These guys weren't athletes. They were like clowns. And I was just like hard charging. I mean, I was running less like I was running a 400 meter in like 55, 56 seconds at 240 pounds, which is not bad back then, Zach. But I would run, and I, I would get done with my PT sessions. We do all these practice PT sessions, and I'd almost just about puke after every one of them. I just pushed myself till I couldn't do it, and it's kind of crazy to think about that. But that was what I was in. I remember there's a guy that uh, he reminded me kind of like the the, the Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz, or the Scarecrow. He's just kind of really uncoordinated and flopping around. And we were, I was on the, uh, I was on the, 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 we had to write a newsletter. It was just a silly officer training stuff. They made you do these stupid tasks and. We're in there and there was a big one of those big paper cutters and he managed to cut his own head in that thing. I don't know how he did it. Oh, wow. it was like these were like, these were guys that were like, you guys are not at all athletes, but it was just it was just comical the way they did that. But I remember that. Uh throwing up's not fun. I don't I don't I don't I can't imagine that uh, you know you do that. And I've done that a few times working out, but I tend not to I've done where I've pushed myself so hard, like uh, on like the airdyne bike, where I go is all out like a minute on that thing, and I would literally question my sanity and my existence i'd stand outside try i would go outside i would do it in, in my in my house or where i had the thing set up and i would have to walk outside because i i, I believe that there was more oxygen out there because like there's clearly not enough oxygen in the room i gotta go outside <laughs> and get some more i'd rather be laying against my truck going my god what am i doing it's craziness but that is that is what we kind of crazy do crazy people do i'm sure shane does the same sort of stuff and uh, so lifting weights Doing yeah. kettlebells uh, during pregnancy is fine. That I mean, that's what most OBGYNs will tell you. I think unless you got unless you got some kind of set of previa or some weirdness going on with, yeah. you, with that. It, yeah. You know, it's interesting. There's not much data on pregnant women in training, um, and they really don't have because I looked because a lot of them are saying, "Oh, you know, be careful." And the the data actually doesn't support that. There isn't much information there about women and training pregnancy in particular and training. Um, so I thought that was, that was quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you just look at, I mean, I would imagine, um, you know, nomadic humans, women did not have the chance to just kind of lounge around, you know, when they're, when they're, they're moving from, you know, place to place and, and the same thing with other animals. I mean, not that, you know, we're not the same as other animals, yeah. but I mean, you know, you don't see, I mean, most animals in the wild are, you know, they're pregnant and, and they, they keep doing what they're normally doing. And you want to protect your muscle mass because that's going to be your biggest protector against uh, gestational diabetes. 
I mean, obviously a diet, but your largest site for glucose disposal is your muscle. Um, so. Yeah, muscle is important. We've talked about that many, many times. It's always good to reemphasize that. Um, what do you, what do you, so what do you got coming up in the near sort of term? Um, I mean, obviously baby, so baby is going to be very important there, but uh, anything, any, any big projects coming up, any new, uh, are you going to be going on any more uh, shows or anything like that? Yes. So I am working on a book. Awesome. Um, finally, really kind of getting myself together for that, working on a book. Um, we're actually speaking at a, a definitely at least two of the same conferences this year. So we'll both be at Paleo FX and um, KetoCon. I'm speaking here at Stronger New York and uh, a couple other ones. NTA. I don't know when this podcast comes out, um, but another one in, uh, I think it's Seattle, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, I'm really working on some of my online programming because a lot of people are asking for um, the people that can't come see me in person want me to still be able to educate them. And so I'm working on an online course about muscle centric medicine and hopefully that will be up and done. Yeah. I, I still love that. I love that term muscle centric medicine. I think it's great and I think it's important and it just kind of, um, yeah, you know, I get frustrated when people say that, you know, just because you have muscle doesn't mean you're healthy. I mean, and, 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 you know, the implication is, you know, people that are just have no muscle are just as healthy as people that have muscle. And I would say that's probably not true. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's people that are, that are, and I think this is something that when we talk about Keith Barr and I think strength and muscle go together, but strength is probably the, the more appropriate. It's, it's not that you have to be a, you know, a hulking bodybuilder, to have right. good good benefits, but you need to have good strength levels, and you need to have, um, you know, decent amounts of lean mass. You know, and I think that that is a, the sort of the message that we should get out there. You know, and, and particularly for women, because women, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's still. I mean, it, 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 stronger women are becoming more and more accepted, at least in some parts of the community. But we're still seeing this uh, anorexic, uh, you know, uh, runway model, uh, eat salads and eat. 700 calories a day type of thing that's being uh, promoted to some degree. And that's just, uh, that doesn't set you up for a healthy aging after age. You know, I, I saw like, uh, you know, Christy Brinkley, you know, model, I remember girl, when I was a boy, I, I thought she was super hot. I was like, wow, Christy Brinkley and seen her on Sports uh, Illustrated, but she's in there vegan, vegetarian for, you know, decades. And now her, and she's not that old. She's like early sixties and she falls. And I mean, her literally her arm just shattered into like, you know, mm really bad osteopenic fracture. And this is something that could have been avoided with more protein than diet. And I would argue more animal protein than diet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do know that those with higher animal protein and uh, high quality protein have higher bone density. Right. So that that's totally true. Absolutely. And then I think uh, one of the things that I saw with uh, calcium, you know, there's some concern with uh, higher protein diets leading to uh, hypercalcuria. So we, we excrete more calcium. The thought was we were getting it from our bones, but turns out that we actually absorb more calcium right. on a higher protein diet. So it, it just kind of, it just kind of cancels out. And so these, cause I get these, these like fruitarian people saying, Oh, meat is acidic and it's kind of leach all the calcium from your bones. And that's just complete garbage and complete nonsense. And our bones are 40 to 50% protein anyway. And it's just, it's just, you know, the, the, the silliness, the, the, the myths you have to dispel and the people that are brainwashed by it, and it's 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 it definitely is an uphill struggle. 
That is for sure. Zach, anything else? Um, no, I think we covered some, some good stuff. Well, I hope, uh, cause I had plumbers in the background working and they're telling me I've got problems. So it's not, uh -oh. so. <laughs> so you're going to have to put those stakes on the back burner for tomorrow. Get some work no, to well, no, I mean, they're done, but they're going to come, they got to kind of get, I got to come back tomorrow with my supervisor, which is never a good, Oh no, yeah. never a good thing. They've got this weird sort of uh, drainage system outdoor that's up to some grinder that's apparently was tripped or something like that and yada, yada, yada. So anyway, sounds like fun. Sounds like it's going to be a big bill. That's exactly <laughs> what that sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Well, Gabrielle, it's a pleasure. Uh, good luck to you and congratulations on the baby and say congrats to Shane for getting into medical school. And, uh, um, you know, I think looking forward to what you do in the future and I'm sure we'll be able to collaborate. You know, like I said, if you, let me ask you, can I send people that are on meat-based diets to you if, if, as, a, as a resource at some point if we need, if they need a doctor? Okay. You know that this is true. All right. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll include you in our, in our list of physicians that don't mind seeing people that eat meat. <laughs> New York, yeah, of course. New York and New Jersey have licensed in both places. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. All right. And if, if you want to share your social media and website and stuff, feel free to do so too. And we'll link those to the show notes. Okay. Why don't we share it now or send it to you? You can share it now. Okay, so Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and that's on Instagram, and uh, I'm probably most active there, and my website, which needs a full makeover, and that should be happening within the next six months, is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and Twitter and Facebook with the same handle. Awesome. Well, thanks a bunch for coming on. Yeah, I'm glad this worked out. Really nice to see both of you. Great. Thank you. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.